Oh, that was wonderful. Thank you, Lincoln. Love the strings, Josie, for helping out. Praise the Lord. If you would please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And you'll remember that Jesus, just in the previous verses, had urged his followers, a group of them, actually at this point uh, growing to quite a sizable group, uh, warned them to be ready to abandon all for the sake of, for his name and, and for the gospel. And uh, sacrifice, folks, it's a, it's, a, it's a genuine mark of all true Christians, you can't be a Christian without sustaining and enduring some level of sacrifice and persecution. Uh, for the reader of Luke was just told by Christ uh, as early as chapter 9, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So when you know, churches depict that following Jesus is effortless, to, to attract as many possible followers as that can be done. Uh, that's never a method employed by Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus knows uh, that's not true. It's not an easy path as experienced today in many persecuted countries around the world. It's not easy committing uh, to Jesus. In fact, it's enormously difficult. Jesus said, uh, actually never said anything such as, you know, follow me for entering the kingdom is going to be exceedingly easy. It's going to be soft and nice. No, rather, he just told this crowd that it's not going to be easy. In fact, without God's sovereign intervention, entering the kingdom is humanly impossible. He said it'd be like a, a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. It's, in fact, very hard. And following Jesus is going to be hard. We're reminded there were three men back in chapter 9, wanting to attach preconditions to following Jesus. One was wanting material uh, sustenance. Uh, Another was wanting a furlough, where he could have a delay and go home until his dad eventually passed away. And then there was another man who wanted just a brief absence to go say goodbye to his family. And to all three of them, to the crowd, Jesus said no. No one after putting his hand to the plow and, and, and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, and you look at that, it isn't even as if those requests, or the nature of the requests, were completely unreasonable. The problem was that none of them wanted to leave anything behind in order to follow Jesus. They they weren't willing to uh, sacrifice anything they held dearest. So in presenting Christ, we shouldn't portray this uh, walk as a Christian as exceedingly easy. Rather, it, it is possible... It's full well possible that Jesus will strip you of that which you hold most dear uh, that, that in the world that you love when you become his disciple. But you will find, as we've discovered in this passage in last week, afterward, after you've been stripped of what uh, you hold dear and then follow, following him into his kingdom and his glory, uh, forgiveness of sins is more precious than, than any rare pearl or, or other treasure that you might happen to find. This reveals a, a prerequisite of following Jesus. That, that is it's seeing Him more important than anything else that you have. He is the most important. 
Yeah, he is eternal life. You know, Peter knew the, cro- the cost. He said, Lord, we've forsaken everything. We've left everything. Then Jesus reassures that, that anybody, anyone who leaves family behind or fortune or fame to do his will uh, in this life and in the next life is going to be amply restored. Amply restored. There's nothing you're leaving behind when you enter the kingdom of God. Uh, but entering the kingdom will involve sacrifice. Therefore, beginning in verse 31, Jesus demonstrates to his disciples that he's all in. He's all in on this. Uh, that, that's how it, how it works, by the way. Uh, a good leader always leads. That's why they call it leadership. I came up on that all on my own. A leader leads. A good leader always leads. The Gospel of Mark chapter 10 reveals at this point that they were on the road to Jerusalem. Uh, This uh, has probably now turned into a fairly large caravan of Jews uh, on pilgrimage to go celebrate the Passover week. The spirit of the people, Mark tells us, is fearful. It's one of amazement, uh, those who are following Christ. It was widely known to them how the Pharisees had been for a long time plotting to kill Jesus. That wasn't a secret. And they had no certainty, no idea for certain what was going to erupt once they entered Jerusalem. Jesus and the disciples now, uh, they're, they're only a few short days just a few short days before he rides into Jerusalem. And the fears and the tensions, they're they're rising. They're rising. And we find in Mark that Jesus is, he's walking a distance in front of them, it says. He's a distance ahead on the road, and, and they are amazed, and all who followed him are fearful. Jesus is out in front leading as, as the others come behind and that's, that's a good reminder to us when it comes to leading, uh, whether, whatever we're leading, whether it is a, is a home or, or a family or uh, Christian outreach or church. When you're leading, you, you can't command others to surrender their lives, to give up their lives, and then say, well, well go ahead and I'll catch up sometime later. Go on ahead of us, I'll catch up. You know, a cowering leader doesn't embolden others to follow along. Jesus is not a cowering leader. If you ever seen, as an illustration, the film, We Were Soldiers, that's with, that's with Mel Gibson. And uh, the movie portrays, it's, it's a true story. And it is of the first major battle that the, the U.S. forces uh, enter into against the North Vietnamese. It was in 1965. It would be the first time, the very first time that the that the air cavalry would be dropped into a live battle zone by helicopter uh, into combat. And, and there's an army lieutenant played by Gibson called uh, named. Uh, he's a lieutenant colonel, Hal Moore, and and he was leading 400 of his men to be dropped into a landing zone. That they didn't know exactly the time was going to happen, but they ended up encountering 4,000 enemy combatants. It was an ugly situation. The, uh, the airdrop had never previously been done before, and the soldiers really didn't have any idea what to expect or how it was going to work out. Only they knew that there was danger lying ahead. 
Colonel Moore declared, I will be the first one on that first helicopter. Mine is going to be the first boot that hits the ground until it is all finished. And I will be the last of my men to bore back onto a helicopter uh, and the last boot to get on when it's all done. Folks, that's leadership. Uh, Colonel Moore kept that promise clearly as illustrated in the movie uh, as he is that last boot to step onto the helicopter following victory. Uh, A graphic picture of war, nonetheless, uh, not appropriate for everyone, but it, it clearly portrays the rippling effect of good leadership, of courageous leadership. Dial that notch up to infinite now, and you've got God's Son, the Holy Son of God being fully divine, also fully incarnate, God made flesh, uh, a real human being, God being man, walking the earth, walking with us on the earth. He, he knows the cost. He knows what he's facing. He knows the ultimate effect about, of about what is going to happen. Uh, he knows he is going to go ahead before he asks any of his disciples to deny, to, deny, to deny themselves and even give up their lives for himself, to die for his name. Jesus says, I will be first. I will lead the way. And my disciples will follow me. They will take up their cross and follow me. And our, our passage in Luke 18, this becomes now, this is the third time that Jesus has described his, uh, and predicted the manner of his death as well. In verse 31 we read, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Almost resembles a creed, doesn't it? All these facts that he is telling them. But, verse 34 tells us, the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. I almost titled this message, A a Date with Destiny. This was the day uh, for which Christ was born, to come in and bear the sins of the world. It's the third time that Jesus graphically describes his suffering unto death, Luke 9, 22, and then 43. And on and each of the occasions now, he is growing more and more detailed about how he will die, much more graphic. So the reader of, of this gospel, they're left with absolutely no doubt that Jesus knows what he's going into. There's no question of what is going to occur in Jerusalem. Uh, Liberal and, well, really tolerant, open-minded theologians. There's there's nothing wrong with being open-minded, as we've been told. Just don't let your brain spill out, right? But but very open-minded theologians have over the centuries cited passages such as this one we're looking at right here and insisted, there is no possible way that Jesus himself spoke these words. In denial of the divine omniscience of Christ, they claim that that one of Jesus' followers must have written these after the fact. 
These accounts are post-mortem. There's no way, they say, Jesus could have known beforehand how he would be turned over to the Gentiles and the exact circumstances that were going to occur when he would suffer and then be crucified. It's, It's a similar reason that the Old Testament book of Isaiah was considered a fraud by theologians for many centuries. Isaiah is a fraud, they would say, uh, because of the detail of the suffering of the Messiah, uh, the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, is too explicit to have originated from a prophet who lived at any point before Christ. You know, much less we know today Isaiah who lived and prophesied 800 years before Christ. That's how much before Christ. And if you're considering only the natural realm, only that which is natural, not what is divine, I could understand their skepticism. Because when we read Isaiah 53, we find just extraordinary precision as to the manner and death. Not only the manner and death, also the purpose of his substitutionary death on the cross, the sacrifice of Christ uh, enduring the wrath of God for sins. Let me provide you with just a few examples. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah writes in verse 5, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. We'd have to admit, everyone would have to admit, uh, Isaiah is remarkably specific. Being pierced for our transgressions. Not only was Christ pierced through, we know the hands and feet, as we, as we saw in uh, our scripture reading earlier, Psalm 22, But the reason he suffered is also given in Isaiah 53. It is for our sins. It's for our iniquities. We also know the bodies of the men who were crucified by Rome, the criminals. They they weren't given a proper burial. And and due to their crimes, uh, these wicked men, they were piled in the dump, often burned. They weren't given a proper burial. Jesus' body however, was laid in a rich man's grave, a a tomb donated by Joseph of Arimathea. Generous guy, but it was only three days. So it is astonishing when Isaiah writes this. Remember, he's supposed to be cast out with the wicked man, but he wasn't. Isaiah writes, his grave was assigned with the wicked man, Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Very specific. There are many more in Isaiah. Too too many for our time today, but just a few more. He would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14. He would be a light unto Galilee, Isaiah 9.1. He would be both struck and spat upon, that is Isaiah 50, verse 6, and his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see that both in Isaiah 7, 15 and Matthew, uh, 7, 14 and Matthew 1. Um, surely these predictions, are, they're too specific, just too specific. And the work of Isaiah 
had to have been written sometime after Christ died. It, it must be a fake. And, he, and even though Jews have always deemed Isaiah legit, detractors boasted how they couldn't find any physical evidence of writings, uh, that the writings of Isaiah were around before Jesus. Uh, that's until 1949, when archaeologists discovered among the caves of Qumran, maybe you've heard of them. If you've been around here a while, we've talked about them before. There are ancient records that were found known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. You'll see in this photo the condition that some of them were found in. Some were in pots. And among these scrolls that they found in pots and on the ground uh, was a near complete collection of the Hebrew Old Testament. They had virtually uh, almost the entire Hebrew Scriptures preserved, again, by ancient Jews, not by Christians. These are preserved by Hebrews. And among them was a scroll of Isaiah dated from well before the time of Christ. That's the truth. That's the truth. In Luke, we read how Jesus took the twelve aside and He said to them, Behold, We are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. You know, it isn't as if Isaiah was the only prophet to ever write about the sufferings of Christ. There were others as well. In Psalm 22, which I read you earlier, David, both a king and a prophet, described uh, Jesus' crucifixion and death with detail. That's a full thousand years before Christ was born. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaw. Jesus said, I thirst. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. King David describes a a style, a type, a method of execution that was never practiced in ancient Israel. It was invented hundreds of years later by the Romans. The Jews stoned. That's how they executed. Either they threw off a, off a mount, uh, or they combined that with throwing someone off, uh, off a cliff and then stoning them as well. But it was stoning. Uh, there's no record of the Jews ever piercing anyone's hands or feet David writes, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. There's no question who David is pointing us to at this point. Especially as Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's clear, it's clear. Folks, the the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. We are to find him throughout the Old Testament. Why didn't the Jewish leaders see it? Why didn't the Pharisees see it? In John 5 verse, 40, uh, 5, verse 39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. They couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. Micah 5 2 said that he would be born in Bethlehem. Hosea 11 verse 1 and Matthew 2.15, by the way, predicts he would flee and, and then return from Egypt. Malachi 4.5 said he would be preceded by a forerunner in the spirit of Elijah, or like Elijah, actually Elijah. We know that that is John the Baptist. Psalm 2 verse 7 says that he would be called the Son of God. Zechariah 9 verse 9 predicted 
that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey colt. Zechariah 11.13, he would be, be betrayed. It had the exact amount, amount right too. He'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 34.20, not a bone of his would be broken. We know that he was pierced. His bones were not broken. Even the criminals, when they, their legs were broken, the Scriptures say they already found Jesus dead. None of his bones were broken. Psalm 16, verse 10, his body would not see decay. So, so this individual would be raised from the dead quickly. Quickly. And these specific prophecies, don't, they don't even breach the tremendous uh, picture of Christ, obvious in the broader themes of the Bible. You see him in the story of Jonah, who spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Uh, he's, he's clear in Ruth when an ancestor of Jesus named Boaz uh, gives, gives, uh, gives cover for a Gentile. It's clear when you look at the nation of Israel and how they were treated, the sacrificial system that were a shadow of what is to come, it all points to Christ. Everything points to Christ. And Jesus, uh, just as Jesus told them, said all the things, all the things, that are written through the prophets would occur. You can't have part of the things. All the things would occur. Yet the disciples, Luke 18, verse 34 says, understood none of these things. That's a pretty final statement right there. We are told these statements were hidden from them. They remained completely blind and oblivious to what Christ was, was telling them. And even a third time, this third time now in one verse. That's emphasis right there. That, that is emphasis. Third time in the same verse, Luke 18, verse 34, they did not comprehend the things that were said. Didn't get it. Right over their head. Didn't get it. It's not as if they weren't afraid for what would happen to them following Jesus into Jerusalem. The text surely says they were afraid. It's not that they don't anticipate conflict with the Pharisees. They do. They do. Jesus' entire ministry was, was conflict with the Pharisees. It was characterized by conflict with the Pharisees. It's not as if they didn't realize that when the Gentiles scourged and tortured men, that they executed by a cross of crucifixion. That's how it was done in their day. They knew what being scourged and beaten meant when it's being handed over to the Gentiles. The disciples weren't short on facts. They weren't ignorant of what was going on. They knew all these things. But they could not understand. They couldn't understand Jesus' words or the implications of entering God's kingdom through a cross. They were completely blind to it. They were blind. They weren't blindfolded. They were blind. Not that they just had to, you know, re, re, redress their, their, their bandages. They were blind. Blind people today still search, can't find the cross. Spiritually blind. Spiritually blind. 1 Corinthians 1.18 reminds us, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to them. The Apostle Paul said that we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. You know, the Jews could not 
comprehend a Christ, a Messiah who would be crucified. They, they, they couldn't, it didn't fit their prosperity theology. They wanted a big fancy kingdom quickly. That's what they were anticipating because that's what they wanted to see. Prosperity. They completely missed everything. All the suffering and the cross and, and the rejection and the sacrifice that was involved with entering the kingdom. They thought it was going to be easy. Clearly, as you've heard, it's not as if the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, didn't prepare them for it. It's not as if they didn't have plenty of information that predicted and prepared them for Christ. Surely it did. Surely there was plenty. Instead, their problem was that they were spiritually blind to the cross. Blind. Could not see it. Couldn't comprehend it. Jesus' statements were hidden. They could not understand. That was their condition. For Paul's assures this, how do we know that they didn't comprehend it, could not understand it? Paul assures if they had understood it, 1 Corinthians 2.18, they would not have crucified Christ the Lord of glory. If they could have understood, they wouldn't have done it. You know, Luke 18 is just one of the many passages that assures that the disciples still couldn't see. Jesus' own disciples, the twelve, and the crowd still couldn't see they were blind. Folks might say, yeah, but, but pastor, pastor, hold on a second here. In Matthew 16, verse 16, Peter confesses this, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? Yeah, and just a few moments later, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. That's how Peter responds. To, to, or Jesus responds to Peter's profession. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block. Stumbling block for me, and you're setting your mind on the things of men, not on of God. Peter still didn't get it. You can confess Jesus as a Christ and not get it. Days away, the disciples still have no clue what the cross is about. Uh, like all people who can't understand the cross, they, they figure the kingdom must be entered some other way. There's got to be another way. got to be an easier door to go through. Um, you want to see what complete, I mean, just really utter blindness looks like? That's kind of stranger. Do you want to see what blindness looks like? This is it. This is it. The day of Christ's resurrection. This is early on now, after the resurrection. Two disciples were on a road to the village called Emmaus. In Luke 24, if you want to look at this later, they were discussing what had happened. Folks, they were whimpering about what had happened to Christ. You know, can you, believe, can you believe the horrible things that they did to him? I, I can't believe it. And they kept ruminating. Verse 14 tells us they were talking with each other about all the things that had taken place. They knew about it all, the crucifixion, even more than that. Wait till you see everything that they knew. The following here is abridged. 
it, it, I shortened it a little bit. I didn't. So get the filler later if you want to look. Uh, and it's just an astounding passage. But Luke 24, beginning in verse, oh, about 14. While they were talking, Jesus approached, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Jesus came asking them, what are, you all, what are you all talking about there? I hear some mumbling. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to Jesus, Are you the only one unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? So Jesus asked, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus. And Look at the detail here, what they knew. The, the things about Jesus the Nazarene who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and of all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping he was going to redeem Israel. See, they're even looking for redemption. Indeed, besides all this, they tell Jesus, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying angels told them he was alive. They knew it had been reported that he is alive. Notice all the detail. He was crucified. He was handed over. He was, he was killed. We, we expected Him to redeem us. We thought He was the Redeemer. It's been, it's been three days before He uh, is reported live, and, they, and they're still whimpering over this stuff. They're still sad. They don't see the glory that is right before them. You know, e- even after all that Jesus had, had told them, it's still just folly. They can't put it together. They're entirely blind. And in verse 25, Jesus said, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe, in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. We have to remember this. The Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, the purpose of them is to explain Christ. That's why we have them. Notice Jesus reiterates to them, re-emphasizes to them what the Scriptures have always said. But even at this point, they remain, they're still dumbfounded by this. Even at this point, after Jesus has said this to them. Next, they approach the town of Emmaus. They, They urge Jesus to stay with them. Still didn't recognize who he was. And when he had reclined at the table, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he gave it to them. And the Scripture says then, at that point... At this point, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Oh, glory. There he is. What happened? They had all the information. Jesus was was physically with them. They were right there. But their eyes were blind. They needed to be open. You remember what we discussed uh, two weeks ago? about the, the active and the passive Greek tenses. Active means there's involvement of the subject. Passive means it was done to them. When it says their eyes were open, do you think that's active or passive? It's passive. 
it's passive. It would be fair to translate this, their eyes were opened for them. That's what you get from it. Their eyes were opened. They, they were blind. Who opened them? God. God opens the eyes. It's not different from Acts 16 verse 14 when the Apostle Paul witnessed to a Jewish worshiper, a, a woman named Lydia. And as she was listening, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken to her by Paul. Who opened her heart? God opened her heart. Opening of the heart, opening of the eyes. These, are, these, are both, uh, these both describe the same remedy. The point when, when those who are blind to the truth are enlightened by God to see Christ as Savior and Lord. That's what it means to be opened. Their eyes are opened by God. Remember, this doesn't imply that they didn't know truth. The men headed, headed towards Emmaus knew detail. They were on the road. They knew everything. They could not see Jesus still. The disciples understood nothing. Jesus' statements were hidden from them. They could not comprehend until God opened their eyes. Folks, God is completely sovereign as to the moment your eyes are opened. Jesus makes the blind see. Knowing this topic about how eyes are opened and, and how the disciples remained blind and their eyes needed to be opened, does it surprise you what the next topic is in Luke? You look down, what is the next thing that occurs in Luke? Blind Bartimaeus gains his sight. That's the next account in Luke. Folks, although facts about Christ, doctrine about Christ and the gospel, they're essential for salvation. You've got to have them. You've got to have them right. The possession of facts alone, just facts, can't cure spiritual blindness. God has to save. He's the Savior. This spiritual blindness, it's the reason, folks, entire denominations across America who recite... Things like the Nicene Creed and others in their liturgies, uh, some every single week, still see nothing. Still see nothing. I, I brought with my liturgical book here from when I was young. This is recited by nearly every week. This or others like it, similar things are recited. I won't read the whole thing. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. For us, He, and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, He rose again, in accordance with the Scriptures. He will come again to judge in glory uh, the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. People recite that. Over and over and over. Every week. They have facts. Many remain blind. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with creeds. There's nothing wrong with confessions. A certain amount of liturgy isn't bad. It can be edifying. We benefit from these things. The problem is when you rely on just those things. 
just reciting facts about something. Um, I grew up Lutheran. Rita was Catholic. Lutheran and Catholics don't have a corner on the blindness market. Um, and I know some good Bible-believing Christian Lutherans. My mom was one of them. She understood the truth. God had opened her eyes. Also, scores of evangelicals and Baptists discover that after their children have gone away to college, uh, some of them have departed from the faith and now are living just like pagans. And they're like, what happened? We taught them everything. They know better than that. We've taught them the faith. They memorize so many verses when they're in Sunday school. Uh, They're baptized along with their other classmates. Where did it go wrong? They, they came to the altar when the pastor said, Come, receive Jesus as Savior. I, I promise it will make your life easier. And they came. But then they discovered it doesn't always make your life easier. Sometimes it's hard. What happened? Did they, did they lose their salvation? No, you can't lose your salvation. We're sealed unto the day of redemption. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are they saved but backslidden? Maybe a few. Possible. More likely we filled them with facts, but they remain blind to the cross. It can happen in Christianity. You look at Israel today, and they have Isaiah. They have all of these things pointing, Isaiah and the rest of the scriptures, they have all of these things pointing directly at what happened to Christ. They're blind. A few Jews come to faith, uh, Messianic Jews come to faith in Christ. The whole nation, the majority of the nation remains blind. They can't see. The majority, as you'll probably learn from Pastor Weiler in the Bible Life Group, I hope you're attending. It's great stuff. The majority of America remains blind. That's why we have the conditions that we have. How do we respond? Folks, we have to respond by pleading that God will open eyes. It's not only getting more facts. Those facts are great. They're essential. We need to pray that God will open their eyes because He can. God saves. He has the power to save. This is the glorious truth of God's sovereignty. Christians don't pray to a God who can't. We pray to a God who can. He is mighty to save. You know, most people here, all of us here, you've heard the gospel over and over again. You've heard the facts over and over. You have the facts. Healthy churches don't only preach Christ which we do, we preach Christ, they also pray that God will open eyes to Christ. Open eyes to see how He courageously went ahead of us. Asking us, inviting us, urging us, compelling us to follow behind. But He's going to be the first to endure the cross. So I'm going to go first. I'm going to handle this. You follow me. It's not to make your lives easier. I'm going to go and I'm going to be crucified for sins. Deny yourself. Sacrifice your life. Take up your cross and follow me. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what glory we have with the power of your Spirit to see hearts and eyes open to the truth. And Lord, we we beseech you. We're helpless without you. We can... can, uh, 
do catechisms in Sunday school and teach creeds and sing songs with doctrine. We can preach our heart out, Lord, but we need your Spirit to save. Father, as we, we here in this room have talked through these things, I pray that each of us has searched our heart and that your, uh, your Spirit has made it warm and alive to the truth that it, that it contains. Most people have been taught, uh, we know about Christ, Lord, uh, but we know you have the power to save. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for the truth of your word, the, the beauty of the gospel, the strength and power contained within. Lord, uh, you have saved us, and we glorify your holy name for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.